Hello again, Asymptote listeners. I hope spring or some species of beautiful weather is arriving in whatever part of the world you live in. It's been a very busy time for Asymptote Journal, and we have many surprises in the works for this year. Our special 8th anniversary winter issue, Body Memory, with its stunning botanic cover art, possibly my all-time favorite, is live on the site and has another record-breaking 35 countries represented, including the winners of the fourth edition of our Close Approximations Contest. If you'd like to get a look inside the mind of one of our winners, Olivia Hellowell, check out the last episode of the podcast for an exclusive interview with podcast editor Dominic Boyle. On the contest front, stay posted in April for some major news as we are shaking things up for 2019-2020. Instead of our usual contest format with translations, we will be unveiling something new and exciting with an especially wonderful guest judge. I cannot say anything more just yet, but we will resume showcasing translation contest winners in our 10th anniversary issue in January of 2021. On this edition of the podcast, we are joined by poet, translator, and editor, Rebecca Seiferly. Her collections of poetry include The Ripped Out Seam, which was a finalist for the Patterson Poetry Prize, The Music We Dance To, winner of the Cecil Hemley Award from the Poetry Society of America, Bitters, which won both the Western States Book Award and a Pushcart Prize, and Wild Tongue, winner of the Grub Street National Poetry Prize. She has translated poets such as Alfonso de Aquino and Ernesto Lombreras, along with a personal favorite, César Vallejo, which is where I first encountered her work. While I cannot imagine the wild task of translating Vallejo's work, Copper Canyon Press published her translation of the Black Heralds in 2003, and her translation of Trilce was a finalist for the 1992 Penn West Translation Award. Cypherly has been awarded a Lannan Foundation Poetry Fellowship, and in 2012 was named the Poet Laureate of Tucson, Arizona, and served until 2016. Our conversation also got at the heart of a topic very dear to me, as she is also a teacher, an advocate for literacy, and early exposure to creative writing. I was reintroduced to her work thanks to the book Into English, Poems, Translations, Commentaries, which came out at the end of 2017, edited by Martha Collins and Kevin Prufer. The work is a unique mix of craft book and anthology that illuminates the history and the art of translating poetry. Several translations of the same work are followed by insightful commentaries and Cypherly provides one of the Vallejo translations, along with Clayton Eshelman, who was my first window into Trilce in English. She also contributes the wonderfully detailed essay on the variations of Lorca translations, and her words gave me an entirely new appreciation, both for the pleasure and necessity of multiple translations of a work, and for the importance of getting at the heart of words and interrogating even the words we think we know. In fact, especially those words we think we know. She says... I'm constantly trying to disrupt what I think I know. In our conversation, I'm delighted to learn about how translation has affected her poetry practice and ask her about a wonderful poem available at Poetry Foundation, which I'll read now before we get into our conversation. Muse of Translation There is no muse of translation, the translator reminds as he struggles with Pindar's victory odes. And what he means is that the imagery is overwhelming, 
the hissing of snakes as Medusa's sisters mourn her death, the baby Iemos lying on a bed of yellow and purple violets, Heracles, with his baby hands strangling the two serpents sent to devour him on the day of his birth. So every translator must be aware of rank transplantation. Just imagine, if one were to translate the line as forge your tongue on the anvil of truth, how ridiculous that admonition to a king. Better to transpose to the vague modern, though Pindar, perversely from our point of view, often seems to relish the concrete image. And it's just there that I think perhaps all being is translation. The child I was at the kitchen table, translating my mother into my father and my father into my mother, each one's inviolate honey becoming the blameless venom of the other. So now I too prefer the naked tongue, even pained and writing, caught in hammer and tongs, flexed and torqued upon the anvil, until the metal turns mercurial, quick, spilling into and out of the shape of everything that is. For all day, while that pair of grey-eyed serpents feeds the abandoned child on honey, and the email box fills with a multitude of voices debating the distinctions of the hoaxes of authorship, the pseudonym, the heteronym, all the masks we can put on. I have trembled because of my tongue, because it insisted upon saying I love you. So it waits and waits for some word from you. It's late in the afternoon when you finally reply, and then to the quote I sent to a list. I read obliquely, wondering if I should hope because you say you're thinking of Shakespeare's sonnets, the beloved and the lover's love, or if I'm lost to the shadows you're going off to dispel with a cup of coffee, that best at the end of your letter. My allotment from now on. Is it too much love or too little that I have translated into being? Oh, by now I'm mistyping forget your tongue on the anvil that the tongue itself has made. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for sitting down for the Asymptote podcast. I'd like to start by asking you how you got started in translation and how you got started writing poetry and, you know, what what came first and where do those two practices overlap? Actually, I think they overlap from the beginning. I started writing poetry seriously when I was like 14. And at the same time, I started reading a lot of poetry in French and then later Spanish. And during this period of time, I was also writing fiction and poetry. And I began to realize that it was in writing poetry that I was most truly dealing with my deeper experience. The fiction for me at that time, anyway, I had a much more conventional idea of it as plot-driven and somewhat escapist. So poetry was for me the deeper engagement, and that was informed from the beginning about feeling this affinity for these French poets like Baudelaire and Rambo, and then the Spanish poets 
work and buy a home. I think I felt at that point that I had learned everyone's language but my own. My parents were often in conflict and such different people that from the time I was like six or seven, they'd have me sit with them at the kitchen table and literally translate what each one was saying to the other. Oh, wow. So English to English translation. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, my father's language was logical, cold, sometimes aspiring to metaphysics or sort of spiritual preoccupations, while my mother's language was much more visceral, sensitive, sometimes prickly, impartial, and they could hardly talk without erupting into some argument. So I had the sense of knowing their languages, but of my own deeper experience being inarticulate. That's partly what drew me to poetry, was trying to write an assignment with quatrains and rhyme and meter about my favorite plays, and just feeling so frustrated, not so much at the constraints of the assignment, but that I couldn't say anything about how I actually experienced being within that place. And that sense of feeling that I could not say these deep players of my own experience drew me to poetry. And reading these French and Spanish poets, I felt an affinity of being drawn back to sort of the root of the word, that place where the word borders on silence and all language seems somewhat unknown. Those poets influenced me more than almost any of the poets that I read in English at the time. Though I didn't really take up translation like in some committed way until years later when I was getting my MFA and wanted to write about some of these poets critically and realized that to do so, I was going to have to translate them. <laughs> <laughs> because the translations that existed, I felt they missed something or misdirected. And is that how you got involved with Vallejo originally? Yes, I started reading Vallejo and Marco both in high school. Wow. And then wanted to write critically about both of them in grad school, and that's when I was drawn to translation. And then I had an advisor in grad school who suggested casually, as she was inclined to do, that I should translate Trilce. So I was like, sure, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm never going to do this. And furthermore, I'm like, oh, I'd have to find the original text and these other texts. So I was going home from this residency, stopped off at a bookstore in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
walked into the bookstore. Right there in the front on the refrigerator table was a copy of Chelsea for like 75 cents. <laughs> in the original Spanish, it was an introduction so far. And I was like, okay, I'm stuck. <laughs> so it was just like this kind of gravitational pull. I mean, some, one of the things that I find so interesting about talking with people who are both poets and translators is that that always seems to be the case, that they're really intertwined and that one led to another and that your poetry begins to be a little bit obsessed with the concept of translation and and will use it as a sort of like metaphorical tool. So I was, I was looking in your poetry for that a little bit and found the Muse of Translation uh-huh. Yeah. And, and it's like it's it's wonderful because I feel like everyone I kind of look for that who's a poet translator they have this sort of it's almost inevitable that translation begins to be able to act as a metaphor for everything for everything in your life um, uh-huh. and that poem really made it explicit and you mentioned your mother and your father but just kind of how like you know everything is a, is a translation um, like, do you feel now that they're just completely braided together, like your translation practice and your writing practice? Yes, I would say so. Like, over time, that's happened. And it's partly because they both intersect with various, like, fundamental preoccupations, like the root of the word, the way words have these multi-layered meanings that they take over historical time. And at the same time, there's this kind of root from which they originate, and that sense of what can be said in language and what goes unsaid, that sort of inarticulate sense. So it's become part of my practice in the sense, for instance, when I translate, I look up every word in a dictionary, even the simplest of words, because it disrupts this kind of assumed knowing, this level of preconceptions and what we think we know. In the same way, writing poetry can often disrupt so that we discover various aspects of our experience that had remained inarticulate until we wrote of them. I think it was, it's a George Steiner who said that all poets are translators. And that quote always came, seemed to me to reflect my own experience, which felt that poetry was very much translating my own experience into the language that I had grown up with, but still didn't feel at home within. And I wanted to ask you too about teaching, because I know that you've been teaching for many years and you've taught creative writing and translation. And I was really interested first to hear about your views on, on how important it is to teach really, really early on, like in kindergarten, creative writing, mm-hmm. um, and how you've seen that really affect um, adult writers as well. And I was wondering if you had brought translation into that as well. Yeah, I think it's very important. I lived in New Mexico for a couple of decades, 
And at that time, they had an Artists in the Scrolls program. Hmm. That was well-funded and quite vital. So I did a number of residencies with uh, K through three, kindergarten through third grade. And I'm going to these classes, and these were large classes. One of the schools that I worked with was considered to be, was literally called a warehouse elementary school. Oh, wow. Because it drew people, kids from the surrounding area. Many of them were ESL students, speaking Spanish as native speakers, and also Diné, because it was near the house. Reservation. And in these kindergarten classes, of course, most of them couldn't write. So they'd write their own poems. I'd get them to draw pictures and color, and then I'd go around to be their secretary and write down whatever they wanted me to say was their poem. And sometimes they'd were a kind of mix of two languages. And later, I went on to teach at community college there, that I ended up having a number of these students from these K through three residencies in my composition classes or literature classes. And all of them, had such an enthusiasm and confidence for writing poetry, fiction, just this feeling that it was open to them, rather than that sort of view that the poem or translation is like a really difficult sort of complex puzzle that yeah, one exactly. has. So I saw in those students and felt very fortunate to be able to do so that the impact of those early workshops had carried over into their sense of being at home and expressing themselves in whatever form that might take, whether her poetry or finding short stories or even personal essay. So I thought it was a terrific program. And I'm saying that too here. I was Tucson's Poet Laureate for four years. And one of the things I started was a K through 12 poetry contest, which often involved classroom visits. And these kids would receive awards and prizes at the Tucson Festival of Books. Many of the winners were from ESL background. And it made a great difference to them because in my experience teaching with young kids in schools, I'm often seeing that some of these kids who will just like flourish with like writing poems, short stories, and expand their uh, possibilities and build a sense of accomplishment are often students that are viewed as difficult students or problem students. For example, in one residency that I taught in New Mexico, these were huge classes, like 30 kindergarten kids, so I'd have them for an hour, and poof, here'd come another group. And this went on for a couple of weeks. 
So we've been into the workshop um, four or five days, and this teacher came up to me and said, I think I need to talk to you about Alfonso. I'm thinking about taking him out of the workshop. And I said, well, why is that? She said, well, you know, he doesn't speak English. And he'd been in this semester, his first semester in kindergarten, about three months. So she's telling me he doesn't speak English. So I showed her these poems he had written, which were in English, and really beautiful poems. And there were a couple that had a Spanish phrase or two that really added to the impact. And she was just astonished. And also, I think, a bit like dismayed because it's like, why wasn't he speaking English to her? Right. In, in the regular classroom. But I saw this over and over again. Yeah, that is so important. Mm. If you've never written a poem, it does become a yeah. puzzle. Like it becomes like dissecting something. And I, I, I taught as well when I was um, living in Houston and felt like, especially for the ESL kids, allowing them to either use some Spanish or kind of acting as their secretary is like the perfect way to, to put it, completely opened up their brains and made it something that wasn't a test. And I remember one thing that, that would frustrate me would be that sometimes it seemed like it wasn't English as a second language, but it was like English as a replacement language. And the end goal was to have these kids be monolingual in English, where it seems like you're, it was like all this, all this potential was wasted. You could have like these perfectly bilingual children or even trilingual in some cases. And instead you were like kind of, they were being like beaten into being monolingual. Um, and it just seems like translation and poetry and like, showing a kid that a poem can exist in, in two languages or three languages or ten languages, like, you know, it mm -hmm. opens up a whole other world for them. Yeah, that's so true. And so true about the everyone should be monolingual. Yeah. It's just like, why? It's, it's just... Yeah. I mean, I would have loved to be raised fully bilingual. That just seems like such a gift to me. But mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of times it just yeah. seemed like teachers were so, they didn't have the tools to embrace yeah. multiple languages in the classroom either. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And while the education is so much geared towards tests. Yeah. Well, and on, on that vein as well, I had heard you say a couple of times that your your choice to, to be in Arizona um, was precipitated a lot by, by the kind of need to be in a more diverse environment. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if that was linguistic diversity as well, or if that, like what, what was really drawing you to settle there? Oh, well, I think I've learned a lot when I'm skin growing up. Usually choices driven by my father's choices. So when I first arrived in the Southwest, in New Mexico, just past high school, it seemed to me like a completely different reality. So, for instance, New Mexico is a minority-majority state, and I lived there for a good period of time, and then ended up on the East Coast and a visiting poet's position in Boston. And then when that was over, I wanted very much to move back to the Southwest. 
So I chose to move to Tucson because I've been here on Thumper occasion. And it's very diverse. And it's diverse in terms of cultural diversity, but also linguistic diversity. Hmm. Um, my one complaint is that I still feel that Tucson as a community has to do some significant work on creating connections between these cultures. Yeah. And words, there's a long time uh, Latino population here that often remains separate from sort of the uh, literary community which is often funded by more wealthy white retirees mm -hmm. who live in these various gated communities. So it still has these various issues. For instance, uh, Tucson School District is still operating under guidelines to desegregate. Oh, wow. So it's a continuing sort of um, um, struggle. So it's in many of these places, there's, like in New Mexico, there's more diversity than linguistic diversity, but also cultural diversity. But at the same time, that often comes kind of fault line or division in the community. Right. Um, so it's like there's these continual efforts to try and make these connections, but again, they often have to be restarted or given more energy subsequently rather than something just coming together and creating this kind of openness and inclusion. Because no matter what the divisions are or the efforts that are needed in the community, it still creates a different awareness so that that sort of dominant narrative of Puritan white America is disrupted. So it's like this other history thing ruins the long historical connections um, within this place. Yeah, you can see all the different versions. Mm -hmm. on, like, yeah. kind of stacked on top of each other. Well, that's a good way to put it, because, for instance, Tucson is one of the first inhabited places in what's now called North America with this indigenous culture that lived here and started irrigation systems 4,000 years ago. And yet, most of those sites have been, like, overlaid with interstate hard <laughs> dirt blocks. Uh, so it's, it's literally like an overplay, constant overplaying and sort of constant attempt to excavate and remove those layers of erasure. When I was thinking too, with the ideas of layers and kind of like different, almost realities kind of being layered on top of each other, I was thinking back to the, the Lorca essay for, for Into English. And one of the things that I liked most about the way you were phrasing a kind of study about multiple translations was that, well, I like too the idea that you, you come to translating a poet because you read him in translation and you don't like what you find. Like there, there's, one, yeah. there's one kind of motivation where it's like, okay, actually, I don't think this is right. And so I need to do it again 
to have something that I that I really want to work with. But I also love the idea of just needing a new translation because it allowed us, you said, to see the changing poetics of our own language. So, of mm-hmm. course, a, a poem translated 50 years ago isn't going to have the same nuance or have the same flavor that it does if it's translated now. And that, that not only gave us a different version of the poem, but a different idea of the poet. And you, you dissect mm-hmm. that one Lorca poem and just really get into the different mini-narratives that those word choices take, which makes makes perfect sense. You were talking about, you know, you look up the words even you're familiar with just to see those different mm-hmm. layers, just so that you can make those those choices. Yeah, I think that's, well, it's like I said in that introduction, we start out, I suppose, reading Lorca as we read him. And, mm-hmm. of course, we know Lorca's end that he was executed yeah so there is a point which those poets who have suffered this kind of tragic fate due to political oppression for instance russian poet mantelstrom is another example are often read in terms of their death but you can see this um, kind of reading backward into the work itself from that prevailing sort of awareness that we have within our culture. And as you look over time, you can see that these different translations have created this kind of collaborative reading and understanding of Florica. And that they do change over time, for instance, both Lorca and Baia first became very popular, well, rooted too, in the 1970s when they were translated by Robert Klein, James Wright, Thomas Merton, and they were seen as romantic, spiritualist, these kinds of more attuned to deeper human suffering and a kind of romanticization of that. But it also coincided with American, those American poets and contemporary American poetry at that time that was interested in what was called deep image poetry. Mm, yeah. It's of words like stone, rock, river, door, these very sort of concrete nouns that were thought to take on a kind of spiritual or emotional presence. So the collaborative reading is often, I think, a form of cultural appropriation. Hmm. So that's an issue as well that just as more powerful nations colonize others for their bomb material. There's a way in which the dominant language can, in a sense, try to colonize or appropriate these various qualities that we associate with other cultures, but that are in fact exist within our own shadow selves and what becomes stereotypical. So I'm constantly trying to disrupt what I think I know. In other words, what I'm just sort of going on with what I've assumed or what I thought or 
perhaps something I missed. So taking it back to the word disrupts that, and in some cases, like in Forca's case, where there are a great many translations of his work for some period of time, I would literally take the Spanish and run it through Google Translate like a couple of times. Yeah. Because you make so many mistakes and comes yeah. up with a strange result. But that was disruptive. It made it sort of like blew up this way behind Charles line on the autopilot. Well, right, because Google Translate doesn't have this preconceived notion of what it thinks Lorca is or what it thinks mm-hmm. Lorca's voice is. Yeah. So you would just get combinations that wouldn't a human wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. But it does reflect the cultural assumptions of the target of. And that affects like how works are reviewed, what translations get published. For instance, like if you look at Lorca, he's viewed very much as a sort of tragic, romantic, Fuente, loving yeah. death poet. But that is sometimes at the expense of his intelligence, his wit. Yeah, the playfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the jokes that he's making. Yeah. Exactly. And he's often speaking in code as a queer man. And then also, too, his deep interest in other cultures. So much of his work was also informed by the Arabic traditional forms, though he didn't follow them exactly, but mm. changed them. For instance, uh, those the Gypsy Ballad, which is was always one of his most popular poems. Uh, he just later came to detest it. In part, I think, in writing these poems, he was undercutting and trying to spurt some of the stereotypical images of Roman culture with yeah. him. The sort of opposite that happened. The dominant culture took it up as a celebration of things, more superficial elements. That was one thing that I found was quite interesting, like in writing the essay upon it makes note of it there about this exchange I had with Elliot Weinberger, where he, um, something I said, prompted him to look, and then he came back and prompted me to reconsider as um, the word Amarillo, he said, for instance, is not just the color yellow, but the silkworm to the disease. Oh, yes, yeah, that part of the essay was just so surprising. Yeah, so it's literally the disease that kills the silkworm and rots the silk, and yet traditionally, by which I mean the existing translations into English up to this point, it's just been translated as kind of surrealistic image Mm -hmm. that floods or dies the silk. So it's like the person reading it, it's like, whoa, that's a interesting image or a bit surrealistic or very visual but he's actually 
conveying another layer of meaning by that particular word choice, which gives it much more complexity and depth than just a sort of exotic image. So as a translator, you just, you have to be constantly aware that that is a possibility Mm -hmm. and try to strip back all of your preconceived notions of of, of who you think yeah. you're translating. Yeah, that's my view, though I have to say, I think there are some kind of translators, and this is going way back, because it's traditionally been men who have not shared that view, but have rather felt there was some kind of prerogative to impose on the text, to put meanings from our culture into the ritual, that aren't there to continually not just misinterpret but distort. Um, for instance, there's Emily Watson's translation of the Odyssey recently, where yes, she talked yeah. about that at some length in her intro about how these various esteemed translators for a great period of time imposed these sexist, misogynist word choices into the original Greek. Yeah. So it's, that obviously shows that there is probably some other theory of translation held by those translators that it is one's prerogative to impose. Yeah, definitely. To give a value judgment. Mm-hmm. To kind of, yeah. yeah. So you're, yeah, you're translating the text, but you're also trying to translate for your reader what, what it, what they should understand it as. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I'm most familiar with that happening with them, um, like biblical translations. Oh, well, um, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wanting, wanting some sort of meaning, wanting your, your followers to, to have no, you know, misinterpretation of their own. So you, you change the wording quite heavily. Well, that's a great example. I sometimes use that example in classes where I'm teaching translation, particularly to people who maybe haven't read too many translations or read function translation, because it's always a kind of shock and opens up their awareness when they realize that the Bible they've been reading the <laughs> translation and that there are very different translations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah, that's a perfect example. It's almost like every time there has been the development of um, different Christian denomination or sect there's been a new translation of the Bible mm-hmm. to go <laughs> I think that's, that's probably all the time that we have for this interview, but thank you. Thank you so much. After we stopped recording, we kept talking about the liberties some translators take with the text and agreed that too much translating of concepts into particular cultures or audience was no good for the longevity of a text, was not trusting a text to teach its readers and listeners about its world. We laughed when I remembered an especially good example from my graduate translation workshop where the professor asked us to imagine Proust's Madeleine as an Oreo or a chocolate chip cookie, as something distinctly American or some specific British biscuit or having something distinct 
for each country you were trying to target with a new translation. Better the world become familiar with a new suite than divorce the work from its origins. I highly recommend checking out more of her work, and if you'd like to learn from Cypherly herself, she regularly teaches classes both in person and online at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. I'll definitely be getting into one online from Spain after reading her workshop description as one where the class would explore poetic translation as a kind of migration, moving with the body of a text from one language to another. To move with the body of the text, we must not only read closely into language, but also listen deeply to the voice of a different culture and time. Well, that's all we have for today's episode, and I'm looking forward to diving into more on translation's role in education in some future episodes. I highly recommend into English, and I'm happy to have been turned on to a new way of engaging with multiple translations of a text, coming to appreciate that multiplicity in new ways. Get ready for the launch of an amazing spring issue in April, which is shaping up beautifully online just now. And remember that April is also bringing with it some major contest news from the Asymptote team. Happy translating.